From the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG. I'm Mike Jordan-Lasky. As a person of faith, one of the most disturbing elements of the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol was how much Christian imagery was on display. You don't have to watch too many video clips to see hats and flags and shirts with Christian slogans on them. There's video of a group chanting, the blood of Jesus is covering this place. There are photos of proud boys kneeling in prayer. My guest today, Peter Manso, has been chronicling these images and stories on Twitter using the hashtag Capital Siege Religion. It's not a surprise Peter jumped into this project because he is the first ever curator of American religious history at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History in Washington. At a time when we can't visit museums, Peter has been taking the curation work online. I asked him about what he's learned from this social media effort and what American religious history can teach us about how we got to the present. In the second half of the show, we talked about Peter's most recent book, which is titled The Jefferson Bible, A Biography. It tells the fascinating story of Thomas Jefferson's cut-and-paste job with the Gospels and how generations of audiences have responded to the work. You can subscribe to AMDG wherever you get podcasts. And thanks for joining us. Peter Manso, welcome to AMDG. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, excited to have you. Um, just kind of stumbled upon your work recently uh, and really been interested in, in kind of what you're doing uh, in all kinds of different areas of your uh, professional life. Um, so maybe we could just start by setting the stage for our folks and uh, tell us about all the different things uh, that you're involved in. Sure. Um, well, I am the um, the curator of American religious history at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History. It's a role I've had for going on five years. I'm the first curator of religion at the American History Museum, um, which uh, there are a number of reasons for that, one of them being um, as a federal institution, uh, there are questions about how you approach religion, of course, and we, we can talk about that a little, a little bit later. Sure. Uh, but before uh, joining the museum, for going on 15, 20 years, I've been writing about religion in America in various ways. Uh, my career really started uh, launching a, um, an online magazine called killingthebuddha.com uh, back in, in 2000, um, which is like a thousand years in, in internet time. Uh, but I, I uh, launched that with, um, uh, let me apologize to your listeners for the, the roosters you can probably hear in the background. I, I live on a farm here in Annapolis, Maryland. Uh, but I, in 2000, uh, I, I launched uh, killingthebuddha.com with uh, the journalist Jeff Charlotte, who's a, a name well known among people who uh, cover the intersections of religion and politics. Uh, we started that as a way of trying to uh, write about religion in ways that we weren't seeing in a lot of media at the time, um, engaged yet critical, um, knowledgeable yet not belonging to any particular denomination. So that led to uh, what has been a career now um, writing, I think about eight books, um, all broadly speaking about religion in the modern world. And several years into that, I also went back to uh, to Georgetown uh, and in pursued my, my doctorate in religion, which ultimately took me to this uh, career uh, exploring religion in, in the museum world. 
Excellent. I think friend of the podcast, Kaya Oaks, has contributed to Killing the Buddha. I know she mentioned that when uh, we've worked with her. I don't know if you know Kaya. Yep. Yes, I do. Um, uh, online friends, uh, certainly, but certainly part of this this uh, larger community of really interesting writers writing about religion from a variety of ways that um, I, I think is is a fairly new approach, new in the sense of the past 20 years or so, seeing it um, with all many different venues, making um, the space to write about religion in that kind of critically engaged way. Uh, and so it's a really uh, a wonderful community of writers who are all engaged in this work together. Yeah. So given that background and your, you know, the amount of time you've spent kind of looking at uh, religion in American history and American current history as it's unfolding in front of us, given the events of the past couple of weeks, I just thought this would be a good time to get someone on who knows a little bit of background, who's kind of watching this stuff uh, unfold, especially because I think when you, you think about the, uh, like the, you know, the, the siege of the Capitol on, on January 6th, you know, that kind of event that it's one of those things I think, you know, you'll remember where you were when you first started seeing images coming across this kind of like world historical thing, at least in our, in our country. And then as you're watching that, seeing so, so much religious iconography pop up uh, among folks who are there, uh, often Christian iconography on shirts, on signs and on videos of things that they're saying. And uh, I've really enjoyed on, on Twitter, um, you have been kind of chronicling, gathering up, kind of curating, almost as if it were like a, a living museum online, uh, some of these these images and, and stories as they've been coming out using the hashtag uh, Capital Siege Religion, and which is, I think, a lot of folks have started using that. And again, identifying so many different uh, ways that religion has been used uh, kind of in this event and events surrounding it. So um, so first, I just want to talk a little bit about that, what you've been looking at this these past couple of weeks, what has struck you as a scholar of American religion uh, on display uh, here in, in Washington? Well, I, I was really struck uh, watching the events unfold on, on January 6th um, with just how pervasive religious rhetoric, religious imagery uh, really closely held and forcefully articulated religious beliefs, how pervasive all that was in the attack and in the context leading to the attack. Um, seeing these uh, seeing these flags uh, that people would take the trouble to have printed. <laughs> so a week's long endeavor likely that say, um, Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. Uh, and, and to see the way in which that is, is um, married so perfectly in, in the religious imaginations of so many Americans was, was really fascinating. And I was taken aback by it. And I supposed I, I initially I was, I was surprised, um, but you sh we should not be, um, because it, it, long before this, it has been pervasive in American religious culture to talk about spiritual warfare. Right. And, you can only talk about spiritual warfare for so long <laughs> without it eventually breaking out into actual violence. I think that that is something that we really learned last week. And so that's what I was, that's why I was moved to chronicle this because there's a way in which looking into the future, uh, we will look at the attack on the Capitol and see something that will be considered solely political. Uh, it's possible and this has been the case in some of the mainstream media coverage of the attack. It's possible to think that it's simply a politician uh, inciting his followers to this violence. But if you don't understand the religious environment in which that has taken place, the roles of religious media 
um, repeating the lies about the election, um, that it has been stolen. And, and even before that, uh, describing the election in, ap- in apocalyptic terms uh, without understanding that you really can't understand why thousands of Americans would attack the U.S. Capitol building. So, the, so religion is, is, um, is, I think, one of the most important factors we need to consider and we need to remember when we think about what January 6th meant and what it means going forward. Yeah, I think for a lot of folks, obviously, like those stark images would have maybe been uh, the first time they were encountering something like that. But as you're saying, like this is not a new thing. This didn't just like unfold even around this election cycle, right? That we've seen kind of evidence of this. So, like my my question for you again, as a historian and as someone who also is looking at current events a lot, like how did we how did we get here? Like what are some of the the different you know movements of Christian nationalism you've seen? How, I mean, again, a lot of this bound up with with race as well. Uh, big questions about, yeah, like what, how has a kind of like our national theology gotten us, gotten so many of us here? Um, do you, there, what analogs do we see in history? Where's where this coming from? Boy, there's so much to unpack there. And, and I think that so much of it has to do with this spiritual warfare rhetoric, um, which has really taken hold um, in uh, the media landscape of evangelical Christianity in, in the past 20 years or so. And it has a much deeper history than that. Um, but in terms of the, the immediate um, the immediate causes, I think you find it there. Uh, one thing that I, I wrote about um, last spring um, was the way in which um, events that when we look back in American history, we don't think of them as religious events at all, uh, have been uh, filtered through this spiritual warfare lens to, to kind of, um, to, to militarize the response. And, and one of them that I'm thinking about specifically is, is the, um, the shooting at Columbine high school, um, which, uh, a national tragedy, uh, everyone regarded as a national tragedy. Um, but in the evangelical world, it was regarded as this moment of a demonic force, um, breaking through and assaulting specifically Christians. Uh, there is the mythology of, um, two young women who were killed at Colum- Columbine, who were Christians, and in who, around whom an entire industry has been built, uh, talking about the ways in which um, they present uh, this model of spiritual warfare that should be pursued by people of that generation, so that the millennial generation of, of evangelicals. And um, to see the ways in which an event like that can be um, distorted and made a a, a rallying cry around this militarized, militarized version, uh, vision of Christianity about um, talking about putting on the armor of God. Um, events like that help popularize those notions. And then you see exactly those patches on the people in military fatigues breaking into the Capitol, wearing the armor of God, joining the um, the comic book Punisher iconography um, to notions of... Um, of Christian witness uh, is really a remarkable thing. And so you need to, um, in addition to the very deep American history that needs to be unpacked here, um, that evangelical media landscape of the past 20 years is really something to think about and to think about the ways in which um, that that victim ideology, uh, the, the notion that, um, that American Christians are, are persecuted, uh, how well that meshed with this, the permanent grievance of, of Donald Trump um, and, and how they are able to see any attack as being a further affirmation that we are in a spiritual war and this spiritual war inevitably 
is going to become a physical war as well. Yeah, and I, I don't want to let Catholics off the hook in this. I mean, they're clearly uh, different Catholic leaders. There's an article in uh, America recently by Jim Martin and other kind of Catholic commentators writing like, hey, we have to look in the mirror too because they're you know within some portions of the church, certainly leaders who would be kind of almost it seems like work, reworking the faith to kind of fit into their kind of political worldview, right? Or kind of repeating some of these things. Like, where are you getting that uh, in the in the tradition? Like this, uh, as you're saying, like this permanent state of grievance or feeling kind of uh, attacked and then like that the defense of Donald Trump or like questioning the election. We question the election not because of our faith, but because of like our political leanings. And then we like go ahead and fit that into like our, our religious worldview. Um, this again is something that like is not brand new, but it seems to, to be changing. And I'm curious for you as a historian thinking about like we are certainly a country where our religion and our politics are closely intertwined. Uh, I think about like uh, on the other hand, a country like France, where they're much more kind of secular and kind of public displays of religion really kind of not even permitted by law in some cases. Um, so like what? Yeah. What is that history of the United States? You hear again, a lot of people talk about like we're a, Ju a country founded on Judeo-Christian principles or a Christian nation or where. Yeah. How does that how did that happen? What are some of the roots of that? The kind of uh, bringing together of our politics and religion in such a way? Yeah, this this uh, streak of, of Christian nationalism is is wanting to look back into our past uh, and and see um, and see Christians who think of themselves as Christians in the same way that many contemporary Christians see themselves. And of course, um, to, to do so is um, it, it is entirely anachronistic. Um, the, the, the terms of religious difference, the terms of re religious affiliation that existed. Uh, in the early republic or or at the founding are entirely different from from the conversations we have now um, and and yet uh, there is this desire to to look back at the founding of the nation specifically and see um, a, a clear reflection of this notion that uh, America was founded for Christians um, and Christians may tolerate the, the right of other traditions and um, religious affiliations to be here, but it's not really for them. This is a Christian nation. But that in order to do that, you need to ignore the uh, remarkable religious diversity that has existed throughout American history. Uh, and those who lead this charge, um, specifically um, the somewhat disgraced uh, amateur historian David Barton, uh, like to look back into history um, cherry pick quotes where they can and, and try to make the case that the founders were creating this nation for you, for you 20th and 21st century Christians. This is your nation and we need to take it back. But uh, so correct the record then. <laughs> like what? So what is what's a more accurate reading? I know you've spent recently having your most recent book on uh, the Jefferson Bible and the religiosity of, of Thomas Jefferson and, and others uh, in that era. Um, yeah. What's what's if that's not true? What is a closer, uh, what's closer to the truth? What's a, a better retelling of events, how things that, unfolded? That uh, uh, America, or uh, United States, but Amer the Americas more broadly are, are, were vastly more religiously diverse than, than those who are arguing uh, that we are a Christian nation or are willing to acknowledge or have ever even learned. Um, um, this notion that, um, that early America only included Christians is... Um, requires, um, it's, it's wholly dependent on, on who you count and how you count them. Um, it doesn't count, um, it doesn't count millions upon millions of, of enslaved um, African Americans, um, most of whom um, had nothing to do with Christianity when they arrived, but brought their own 
religious traditions, um, including Islam. It's, it's suggested that um, 10 or 15 percent of uh, enslaved Africans brought to um, brought to the Americas um, had some connection to Islam when they arrived. Later, uh, convert to Christianity, um, but in some instances, maintain those traditions. Uh, the notion that America begins as a Christian uh, as a Christian enterprise uh, doesn't count Native Americans, who likewise had their own traditions, but in, and similarly um, eventually convert to Christianity. Um, but there are all these traditions in our past that need to be actively erased in order to support the notion of, of a Christian nation. And it's um, it, and that's inconvenient. Uh, so it's, it's far easier to do this work of um, looking at the founders and try to see in them a, a, a reflection of the contemporary evangelical Christian mindset. Wondering what kind of lessons from our own history, um, lessons from our own traditions could help kind of provide some, some healing. Obviously there's always a rush to like, Oh, let's all, let's heal everything. Let's uh, all get back on the same page, which can, you know, in some ways whitewash uh, the real violence and, and hurt uh, there. But like, I guess the question for me thinking about like as people of faith, where we've seen our faith co-opted, like what's a way of moving forward where it seems like, you know, trying to sit down and have a positive conversation with someone who's wearing a shirt that says Camp Auschwitz or who is carrying uh, zip zip ties into uh, the Capitol building. I don't know how productive that's going to be, but like what resources are there for us in faith communities who, who want to, you know, kind of resist that and, and put forward a kind of a different vision? Well, for for Catholic community specifically, and and um, I, I say this having having emerged from the Catholic community, um, there is the um, there is the call to be self reflective and to recognize that Catholics in American history have been uh, on on the receiving end of religious political violence um, for for the majority of Catholic American history, and to recognize that that is the case, um, I, I I think uh, creates greater empathy and also could create um, a greater ability to be suspect of these uh, of these efforts um, to uh, enlist religious rhetoric and imagery in in violent political causes. Yeah, I, I do want to kind of turn the, the page back a little bit uh, further um, since you have just come off uh, writing uh, and publishing a book called The Jefferson Bible, a biography, which is part of a Lives of Great Religious Books series from Princeton University Press, uh, came out last fall. Um, this to me, again, really, I've only heard a little bit about the Jefferson Bible in history that he kind of went through and took out the stuff that didn't quite seem to like match up with uh, like his enlightenment vision. Um, but I, I don't know much about it and curious about that. And then what kind of uh, lessons for today that has or how do we can like trace some lines from maybe what we saw a couple of weeks ago or uh, what we're seeing in American religion today to, to that time. So could you just do like for folks who aren't familiar with the Jefferson Bible, just like a quick introduction? The book that we call the Jefferson Bible um, is a uh, the physical book is an 84 page bound collection of New Testament verses uh, that Jefferson physically cut apart uh, in his retirement at Monticello. He finished it, we think, as best as we're able to determine, he finished it in 1820. Uh, and what his goal was, uh, was to create a life of Jesus that um, that would not conflict with the ideals of the Enlightenment, a life of Jesus that uh, included only 
incidents that he thought could be supported by observation um, and, and evidence. So it is um, an enlightenment Bible, essentially. It is uh, It removes the miracles. It removes the virgin birth. It removes, ultimately, the resurrection. Uh, and so it is a, it is a Bible uh, or version of the Gospels that um, Jefferson couldn't believe in without qualifications. He did never, he never called it uh, the Jefferson Bible himself. You'd be surprised that anyone even knew about it, let alone called it his Bible. Uh, he called it the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's what he hoped it would be. It would be a presentation of Jesus as a moral teacher um, rather than as God. So as you're researching that book, what are things that surprise you? What are some of the things you found that you were really excited to be able to share? Well, one thing I learned um, about Jefferson himself was uh, just his the the experimental nature of his um, of his theology uh, and also of just his approach to any any question that he had. And so I actually framed the story of the work he does to create the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth with this uh, early archaeology archaeological dig that he performed near Monticello. He uh, he was always uh, intrigued by these. Um, mounds uh, that dotted the Virginia landscape that happened to be uh, the burial mounds of Monacan Indians. So he physically would cut into these mounds to um, pull away the strata of earth to find what lay beneath. And that was really his approach to scripture as well. He, using his uh, penknife as a shovel, essentially, tried to dig out the core of Christianity. So he was a very... um, a very physical theologian in that sense, trying to do this 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 uh, actual labor to get to the core uh, of the faith, and that to me was something I I did not know about Jefferson. Uh, to to and to see that um, to see that action uh, to see that that labor um, was enlightening. And, and I should say also that um, I learned of the Jefferson Bible through my role at the American History Museum where we actually have the original Jefferson Bible that, that he created. And I was able to include that in an exhibit um, in 2017 called Religion in Early America. What brought you to the uh, to that subject? Was it having seen it and, and encountered it in your work at the Smithsonian? Or what, what made it a topic you thought would be kind of worthwhile, like a, a deep study? Well, I, I realized... Um, while presenting it in that exhibit, I realized that while the story of why Jefferson undertook this project and how he did it had been told in, in um, to, to some degree, uh, it's um, it, it's uh, we, we've known about it. Um, we've known about the Jefferson Bible since the 1880s. I realized that no one had had done the work of uh, looking at how it had been interpreted. And it turns out that since its first publication uh, early in the 20th century, the first official publication was in 1904. Since then, there have been at least a dozen editions um, by by significant publishers, many dozens more digital editions that you can find online. Uh, And for every generation, it took on a slightly new meaning. And it also was presented as this new discovery. Uh, You find again and again every 20 years or so, news stories saying Jefferson's Bible has been discovered. Uh, and what was interesting thing was, was interesting to me is the way in which Americans want to reframe this document, uh, both as a, 
is presenting a new understanding of Jefferson and is presenting a, a new understanding of Christianity, uh, presenting it as, uh, in some senses, um, a, a, use, a more usable sacred text. That's how many people have wanted to interpret it uh, throughout its publication history. And what they've done as a result is create this mirror uh, that shows some of the religious concerns of Americans throughout the 20th century and into the 21st. So as someone who looks at American religious history very broadly, that's what I was interested in. I find the Jefferson Bible itself to be a fascinating historical document that can uh, give us an idea of uh, the personality of one of the founders. But I found more interesting as a historian, the way in which uh, this book has been reinterpreted and reframed uh, in every generation since it's, since it's found, it's discovered. I think that like raises an interesting question in that we have this, you know, our country founded on these enlightenment principles and that people are created equal, obviously haven't lived up to that uh, all that often, perhaps. Um, but with that kind of rationalistic, again, especially if you're looking at the uh, emphases of the, the founders and, and Jefferson, especially, but then like with this notion too of like this kind of deeply Christian nation, uh, which those things don't necessarily match up perfectly, right? Like, so how, how have you seen kind of the the kind of dominant enlightenment thinking in like American life that coincides with like our deep religiosity? Like how do those things like match up? How, how have they matched up through history? Do people have to kind of just set certain things aside or are they better at integrating them than Jefferson might've been? Like how do those things live together? Oh gosh, I, I feel like with the rise of conspiracy theory and misinformation, um, we could all use a bit more Jeffersonian skepticism, um, this desire to see, um, or this desire not to believe simply because you're told to believe, but rather to say, what evidence uh, is there that this is true? What evidence could there be? And to set aside those things that don't have sufficient evidence and focus on those things that we are certain we can know. Um, so sorting through all the information that, that comes at us um, I think that we could use some of this paring down, uh, this focusing on things that we can really know are true. We know that Jefferson's reputation um, has been reevaluated a lot of times through history. And I guess the you know, current trends uh, would be like kind of looking at maybe some uh, cognitive dissonance or talking about all created equal, but himself a, a slave owner, uh, you know, parenting multiple children uh, with slaves. And one uh, really interesting kind of piece of criticism um, engaging your book and uh, largely praising uh, your work and putting it into dialogue with a lot of other thinkers was a, an essay in the New Yorker from uh, earlier in January uh, by Vincent Cunningham uh, at the magazine there and kind of talked about Jefferson's like very just kind of moral teacher, but not a savior, not a redeemer, the Jesus of the Jefferson Bible, you know, contrasting it to say Frederick Douglass's Jesus, who um, was there was something of again the, the the redeemer the the spiritual Jesus the Christ the that that wasn't quite matching up with enlightenment values uh, being really important to to other thinkers at the time and maybe uh, kind of inspiring kind of needing some of that level of uh, spiritual engagement to uh, to you know justify the fight against slavery or to kind of root themselves in as they were working against the slavery at the time so I thought a really interesting dialogue he kind of put together with Jefferson and some other contemporaries about how the vision of Jesus uh, worked differently uh, if you, I'm sure you saw that article and read it uh, what from we'll link to it in the show notes but what uh, what you you mentioned to me it kind of made you rethink a little bit of your book in some ways or think of it in a new way what what did you learn from that article or what have you thought have you thought about your book since reading it 
Yeah, I, I was so I was so grateful for the work done in that essay, um, engaging with the book, uh, because it did provide a, a wider lens for viewing um, the Jefferson Bible and, and Jefferson more broadly. When you write about Jefferson now, of course, the the question um, uh, of uh, the larger question of who he was um, and what it means to have been someone who enslaved and abused um, hundreds of human beings can't be ignored. And yet uh, in writing about the Jefferson Bible, um, it doesn't exactly come up in the text. Uh, and so the question of how to engage with that, um, with with that um, element of, of work that has been done on Jefferson um, was an open question to me as I as I wrote it. And, um, and while I was able to um, mention it somewhat in the introduction and the framing of the book, um, it's not something that I, I uh, devoted sustained attention to. So I was very grateful to that essay uh, from the New Yorker for doing exactly that, um, which is which is a necessary element of thinking about anything having to do with Jefferson. Uh, and so um, seeing the book put into that conversation felt like it, it was completing part of the project. Part of part of the way we see Jefferson brought into like the modern dialogue around religiosity and and politics or so have you seen some of these like paintings uh they're kind of crazy paintings that'll put like often an image of jesus with like other religious figures and like the president and like the founding fathers and they're all like together in a big room and they're like maybe laying they're like blessing the president just like that kind of uh mishmash for me it's like a visual representation of some of this stuff we're talking about the intertwining of um christianity and nationalism uh what do you think like Jefferson, like if he's like tra travels through time and comes to today and sees the, the way that he is used that way or his legacy is used, like I'm sure that would surprise him. Well, one interesting thing to think about the way Jefferson um, approached uh, approached um, scripture is that it was it was necessarily um, it was revisionist. It was trying to separate uh, what truly could be known, real history from um, from the obscuring and the uh, distorting influences of people with their own agendas across time. So I think he would certainly see some of some of that in in use of his own image. And for that matter, he would see it in the ways in which um, statues to figures from American history have been erected and have now been taken down. Um, the idea of actively cutting away and revising um, what he saw as distortions of history would not be alarming to him. So taking down the statues of, um, of Confederate generals, for example, um, would, would not surprise him. Rather, the, the notion that they should stay up simply because they've been up for 80 years would be uh, somewhat alarming. If it was bad history in the first place, cut it away. Uh, so I think that he would understand the uh, desire to um, reevaluate his own role in history uh, and he would also uh, know exactly what he was looking at if he saw those um, those anachronistic uses of his own image uh, being used um, with uh, other types of religious imagery. So, getting to to display the Jefferson Bible, the original uh, book, in at the American History Museum, and and being engaged uh, in this work, I am interested in what your kind of day to day or 
month to month life looks like connecting with with this again we have this this country we have a lot of uh values some of which are historically founded others of which are are not trying to again to educate the public How, what do you see your role as this curator at the, the museum what, what is your main role and then maybe what are some of the things uh, that you're working on you have coming down the pike well my main role as the curator of american religious history is to uh, plan exhibits that have to do with religion. It's to collect objects uh, that tell the story of religion in the nation's past and also contemporary objects to, to find objects that future generations will use to make sense of, of who we are and what religion means uh, now. Um, looking into the future, uh, we are going to do even more at the museum. We just received a uh, significant grant from Lilly Endowment uh, to establish uh, a center for the understanding of religion in American history, uh, which will include a long-term gallery uh, devoted to exactly that, to uh, unpacking the, the role of religion in all its variety uh, throughout the nation's past. Uh, so that is looking into the future. That's the long-term project. That's uh, it's um, a center that is established is being established as we speak uh, and a gallery that will be launched uh, probably in, in three years time, uh, which for, for 20 years will uh, present these themes um, on the National Mall. Yeah. So again, like any museum, especially a national one, is like a challenges in what it does, right? Because it wants to present like, a you know, to engage visitors from all around the world and telling like the best of uh, America, but also being honest. And I'm wondering like, what, are you going to try to get some of the, uh, those flags and other items that were like on display uh, on January 6th? Are those going to, would those be included in a, an exhibit on religion in America? Well, it's hard to say what will be included. Um, but uh, already my, my colleagues uh, have been collecting objects from, from the attack on the Capitol and, and, um, and given the pervasive uh, nature of the religious rhetoric, there are certainly some examples of how uh, religious imagery appeared um, as the context in which that attack occurred. So we are we are documenting that that will be part of the national collection. Are there if uh, when things open back up again and people have a chance to visit, are there any items uh, on permanent display or, or things people could see that kind of engage some of these themes that you like to show people when they come visit you at work? Well, when the museum opens again, um, hopefully later this year, we will be launching a new uh, exhibit, a new temporary exhibit on intersections of religion, science, and technology in American history. And that will include 30 or so objects that, that tell some elements of this history, including the, um, the Jefferson Bible will again go on display as a way of showing that the, um, the Enlightenment influence on American religion. So that's not something that we can keep on on permanent display because of the fragile nature of paper, uh, but it is something that will be on display again, and, and we're looking forward to presenting that. All right, well, we'll have to put together an AMDG field trip and uh, come visit you down when, when that's open. Uh, Peter Manso, I just thank you for your work and for the the book. Again, the, the book is called uh, The Jefferson Bible, uh, a biography, and one of just a handful of, of your books. So we'll make sure uh, folks have uh, information in the, the show notes if they wanna check that out. Um, and uh, yeah, thank you again for the, the work, kind of doing the historian's work uh, in the middle of this, this time we're in and helping us interpret that. So thanks so much. My pleasure, thank you. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States. And when we're not working from home, the show is recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. 
AMDG is edited by Marcus Bleach, and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Eric Clayton, Megan Leepsch, Becky Sindelar, and me. Connect with the Jesuits online at jesuits.org, on Twitter at Jesuit News, Instagram at We Are the Jesuits, and Facebook.com slash Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting jesuits.org slash weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with the Jesuit vocation promoter at beajesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>